This is the DBC. <laughs> La información es exclusivamente, despampanantemente, insolicitadamente turística. <laughs> There's the button. Yeah. We need that every time we say it. Hi everybody, welcome to Tourist Information. This week's interview is with one of probably my favorite living writer in the world, DBC Pierre, who in 2003 won the Booker Prize for his book Vernon God Little. Um, this interview is going to have not the greatest sound quality because we conducted it in Oaxaca, Mexico, where I was profiling for Hazlitt magazine, and uh, the circumstances were very sketchy, quite dangerous, actually. Um, but I've been a big fan of his for a long time and a pen pal of his for several years, and boxing is something that he grew up with. He is quite famous outside of the United States for the 10 years leading up to him writing his first book, where gambling, drugs, alcoholism, debauchery, conning some people, uh, gave him a real reputation as, I guess, to put it euphemistically, a rogue. Um, but this was a fun conversation, so it's going to sound like we're at a firing zone. <laughs> There's a lot of rockets going off, but that's only because it was the Day of the Dead around the corner, and Mexico was really embracing that. So. Uh, I really want to thank DBC Pierre for giving us some time, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Well, I don't think I ever asked you, when when did boxing first come on your radar? Muhammad Ali. Ali. Uh, it would be something pre the lead up to Rumble in the Jungle when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. The noise around Ali and the beauty, and there were enough fights on that. You got to see that it was true. That was in the very thick of the float like a butterfly era and of course the kid used a you gather that that's as good as it gets from everyone around you and of course you immediately warm to Ali because he's a, such a a, uh, a human character you find he's a benign character as devastating as he could be in the ring um, Amazing to straddle both of those extremes too, right? Just killer. Yeah, but it's so a, lovely. What makes him a hero? Yeah, you know, it's yeah. like Superman. Presumably caused a lot of devastation fighting evil, but it's Clark Kent. Not that you want Clark Kent to be a superhero, but. Uh, but I mean, I think of Achilles, and I think of a, a sadness. I mean, the, the name means sadness. Achilles is yeah. like a, a sadness. He wasn't and a tragic. People. Yeah, he, he wasn't, wasn't tragic. tragic, and yet. Now we, you know, in the fullness of time, you know that, you know, he had his reasons for fighting, of course. Um, but there was something in him. Yeah, it was a sparkle, and it was benign. Yeah. There was fun. There was. He had enough power in reserve that he was also playful, and you could see it in his eyes. It's like his best. He was still only at eighty-five percent of what's inside him, and the rest of that could be left over to make faces and smile and laugh and play around and you go, that is, that's something to aspire to. Genuine hero, you know? And the idea that, I think quite literally, that was not only the most known face in the world, which is an odd thing to grapple yeah. with, 
guy beating people's heads in becomes that. It's not just that. I'm oversimplifying. Yeah, yeah. Boxing had a different profile then. Yeah, it did. You know, it did. Boxing was still... I mean, it remains noble. And, of course, we, we know it's a very quirky, it's a very funny business. I mean, the single highest paid athlete in the world today remains a boxer. Yes, it does. And they happen infrequently to that scale, but when they happen, they happen to that level. It's very unusual. And when you look a bit further into the back streets, I took up boxing on the back of that. On one hand, because I was getting bullied at school, and it was that time. Because you, you were overweight as a kid. Well, yeah, it wasn't that. It was just because older kids are fuckwits, you know? <laughs> yeah. Excuse my French. Um, Feel free to swear. This is... Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's just older kids, and I bear them no ill will today. I have zero, zero antipathy, you know? But I used to get my head, you know, slapped and shit. And it was just regular stuff, which is a, your little wake-up call yeah. on your passage through life to shape up a little bit. Mm. And my old man said, well, let's find this or that. And there was a guy who, who claimed to be, if not the trainer, then closely associated with Mantequilla Napolis. Wow. Um, yeah. And he would, uh, he had an old, something like a, a 1969 Chevy Impala. Um, and he and his couple of lackeys would come around this wealthy neighborhood and give boxing classes. And it was like a little link to, to the gym. And I got right into it and ended up with my punching bag and, and the whole thing. But what he used to do is go around in the Impala collect six or seven of us from different houses and we would take turns hosting the boxing club in one of our houses huh. or gardens and I started boxing during it would have been around that rumbly and this is in Mexico City that you see yeah yeah in Mexico City and um but it was so much more on the radar and Ali may single-handed although yeah, we'd had foreman and that it was like politics today it was also more more crowded with giants the field i think of boxing and there's been some you know tyson was almost like the the ledge of a, of an era and we haven't quite uh, found our way back to to that height not to say that that's an easy thing to do well one of the things you said about ali i remember in a letter that we shared is you said it's a little kid ambition to want to be the heavyweight champion and the ones who can stick with it and and have the talent to be able to live up to that potential or persuade us that they could essentially get to remain the little kid who dreams in a way yeah that's true because we all have to become responsible and take on what adulthood means and let go of these dreams Ali never did. I mean, yeah. he got to stay the three-year-old where everybody's in service of a dream that's bigger than ours or something. That's true. He's blessed with poverty. Yeah. And unfortunately, the curse of any kind of affluence is that a great many more doors are open. And the same goes for, you know, the equivalent. You know what's happened as well? I think some of the spirit of that era has morphed into rapping. Mm and hip-hop which, which he is helped, cool which he helped yeah. do with his rapping yeah exactly well he was a natural right he loved, he would do that just in in speaking he would speak in verse which is gorgeous he just had that much that much energy left over to play around and thought it was fantastic but no the energy is still being expressed mm. but it's coming out through other holes and through other windows and, and um, 
So that's a, that's a cool thing. But boxing also, I mean, we've gone through a, you know, these, these incredibly liberal decades of starting to frown upon or question anything remotely brutal. And there is a brutal, boxing is potentially really, really a serious mistake. Somebody, we, somebody just died the other day. Yeah, to wit, exactly. We, we, we've lost a couple recently of good guys doing what they should do. And of course, it's accidental, of course. No one more devastated than the man who threw that punch. Yeah, it ruins two careers. Yeah, I've heard. but you're punching in the head, punching at someone's head. And the idea is, of course, that that person be able to defend themselves. Gracias. So, apart from your random accidents, which which are going to happen in any sport, really, um, a lot of responsibility comes upon organizers and, and promoters and the back room of boxing to make sure people are fairly matched and to make sure that they can defend themselves. Well, one, thing, one thing I wanted to point out, though, is that the guy who died, an interesting feature of it, he was college educated. That's great. But, but it's very unusual. But boxing is a sport of kings. Yeah. Um, but he chose so, it. Like, yeah. it wasn't poverty in, in, in an extreme case with him. Ali was also the son of a, a church painter. So he was a little middle class. So the approximation of becoming the... like I mean, he very much positioned himself against Joe Frazier. Frazier is the white, white champion. Sure. I am the black champion. But it's like, you didn't really grow up the way most... African-American fighters did sure so it becomes like a construct kind of like Miles Davis very wealthy affluent background yeah. but became the embodiment of how white people that's perceive true. Okay. extreme there's, which I thought's interesting it's yeah. there's the, some imagination there there is there yeah some some mythology but I guess there's a punch in him from childhood that he needed to throw and land and that right. never goes away the amount of grit it takes to to achieve a good level in boxing, especially the trials and tribulations of the business and dealing with that backroom of it, which is the biggest nightmare. You might be equipped in the ring, but some of the snakes you find in the, in the corridors of boxing um, is a whole other ball game and even more dangerous in a way in terms of making and breaking you and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm presuming that the likes of Ali also, for some reason in childhood, had a punch that needed to have been landed, and he just kept landing it, yeah. although the target had long since passed. Well, he, I always thought, like, we owe, the, we owe a great debt to this kid, whoever the hell he was, who stole 12-year-old Cassius Clay's bicycle, which mm. led him to a boxing gym. Yeah, well, maybe he needed a punch. Maybe that was the punch, <laughs> you know. At least certainly someone, someone, uh, someone was behind all those, those good punches he laid, or something. And we don't know who it is. I don't know if he had a very bad experience in, in childhood, but it was good. But also, it was a sport. Some people see it as a sport, and it's been an Olympic sport for a long time. And so, sure, uh, you know, it's interesting. But it is one where you can, you can come with rage, you can come with athleticism, you can come from so many different directions and be a winner in boxing. Um, it's unusual. I hope. I hope it continues to prosper. You know. The well, one I heard you 
talking yesterday and you made reference to the fact in how you see yourself as a writer as a pitcher rather than a batter and I always have noticed in the fighters that I've interviewed like the world champions almost to a man they're the guy going into the casino as a gambler a couple of them have been the dealer in the casino they represent the casino they're there to to fleece the gamblers of their opponents but you immediately went instead of the guy trying to hit the home run you're trying to strike something out yeah so you're the dealer and not the I'm gambler. knocking something down yeah rather than building something up in a way different mode though it is but it's uh, the writing I'm doing is is doing that I figure mm -hmm. and it's not deliberate that you bring it up it's the first time I may have spoken about it or or thought about it but it's true I would automatically say that's a pitch and not a bat but it's a, it's a worthy distinction, though. You do, right? and at very best, you want it to go past the bat. Yeah. We were talking about the, the role of editor as a catcher mm. and that um, uh, how much better it is to know there's someone behind the bat and that, the, you know, you're going to keep being able to pitch. Absolutely. At the thing, and of course... Um, but I also think, like, isn't it a different mo Ali in particular, it's the gambler who stays too long at the casino until they kind of lose everything. I mean, lost... By 40, the rest of the journey is is the cautionary tale for most people about boxing. It is. Is the jury in on that? Is that head injury? Or is there something more? I mean, you mentioned that the Foreman thing was your big gateway drug into yes, it. Yes, yeah. Post that, I mean, he's 32, 33 when that happens. Of course, that was already advanced, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. tens of thousands of rounds of sparring, and you know, how yeah. many blows did he suffer? I know, it must have. No, I mean, it looks, you know, it, it does look uh, unequivocal. However, I know I don't from. Know, I don't know the facts. Well, I know from. I know from Thomas Hauser asked him directly, his biographer, would you change anything toward the end? And he was like, are you crazy? Do you think I would trade the life I've had for what I've had to deal with with Parkinson's? Like, it's, it's not a thought yeah. that I've ever had. Of course I would rather be me, the good and the bad yeah. of it kind of thing. You had a very long, a very long time of it. Very long time of it. I Do mean, you want I, a side note, actually? Sure, this sure. is completely uh, unsolicited, but the, um, there's a fabulous little book by A.J. Lees, who is uh, a head in Britain of one of your, he's a neurologist, extremely senior, um, He's the head of one of your Parkinson's research institutes. Anyway, in the little book he's written, he was inspired by Burroughs, and he's written about his inspirations to, along the way of studying the brain and these mysterious things. Um, but anyway, in that, uh, he's pointed out that smokers have 50% the risk of Parkinson's than non-smokers do. True. Yep. And that people with Parkinson's who fall into these sudden spaces uh, which which can kind of randomly start and end, I understand. Um, in some, if not many cases, a cigarette will kick them back out. Um, but it was written in the context of, of course, that's nothing he can say in an official capacity, and, of course, I'm not recommending it here, but uh, just to note, everything connects to something else, I'm thinking. A silver lining. Well, I'm sitting here smoking, thinking, OK, well, you know, I'm at risk for just about everything, but Parkinson's, uh, I may have half the risk, so it's not all bad news. Everybody looks at the negative of smoking without the positive. <laughs> We're here to help. But do you see, 
is there something with your first book out of the gates wins this huge prize a lot of fighters the moment they win the title that's kind of the end of them we don't it's hard to it's harder to maintain defending your title than it is to win it many of them have said sure do you feel that at all career-wise as well uh, it's a little bit different because winning is much more arguable for me mm. and so I'll say this that if the aircraft takes flight with that first win then what immediately happens is the flaps go up and you have to manage the the, the aircraft in flight and mm. gain height and that is certainly much more difficult although achieving the exit velocity comes from a different place um, Gracias. Gracias. Yeah, getting exit velocity for that comes from a different place and the risks you take are much higher. And so I guess your risks change and you have to manage it. That's flight management rather than, uh, you know, just lighting a candle and putting it into the atmosphere. Mm. Um, so I'm thinking of that because if you take off here from Mexico City, the air is very thin. We're at like 8,000 feet above sea level. Um, and you'll notice, especially if you're on a wide-body jet, that they will sit at the end of the runway with the handbrake on and spool the engines up to max until it's trembling and then just pull the brake off because they really need to try and rock it into the air. Mm. And it's slow and they come off slowly and you'll notice if they put the flap up a moment too early, you feel the, the plane dip, sag back into the air towards the ground. I had that experience um, and it lasted for probably the decade after that first success. In terms of just trying to find purchase again inside myself, the air is thinner, trying to find purchase enough to spool up into a, you know, some, to forget that I'd done anything and get back to a position where I was just taking the wildest shot I could. Mm. And I'm now back there, I feel, but it's taken that, which is a couple of novels and 10 years probably that little slum and now I feel I'm climbing and now in myself not to say that the work will be any better but the um, the analogy is very similar you know it's the, the air is much thinner once you've done it once and of course the risks that close to the ground are greater why do you think that there are so many writers who've been drawn to boxing the way it is you know like it seems odd to me what Norman Mailer Ernest Hemingway like very male male yeah but also Joyce Carol Oates. Um, that I was about to say, well, thankfully, Joyce Carol's in there right. as well. So, yeah, it's not all men. No. Because otherwise it's just a man thing and then you start making nasty parallels between between your penis and right. writing and boxing. Right. Which can probably also be made. But. but what do you think it is for writers, this connection to... Like, yeah, I mean, lots of them are sports fans. They're looking for their escape from the grind of their work or whatever. It's it's an escape. But boxing in particular seems to ins have inspired historically so much great writing. It just seems available. I mean, one, one writer, S.L. Price, told me Cuba and boxing are similar in that it takes talent to write a bad story about either <laughs> because it's just there. Again, yeah. it's, it's a Pruder film. Like, nobody's commending the camera work it doesn't make any difference because <laughs> how do you fuck it up if you're there and you're yeah. looking at it yeah right it's a keyhole into something extraordinary yeah. i don't know the answer except to say it's been around long enough that we forget 
has to be the most basic organic expression of human energy. Hmm. Think about the species uh, has always spent its time in conflict. We have it internally, we have it externally. We generally speaking dislike other people and dislike the idea of other people. Regard underneath our beautiful psychologies and our personalities and of course we're social and we have rapport and we make friends and etc. But generally speaking we will attribute most problems to other people. Um, and so we're in this conflict-laden crucible, this strange creature without anyone to look at. The nearest thing we can look at is a chimpanzee and they can't give us any clues. Um, and so we're really, we're isolated like aliens in this weird place. We're extremely violent, we're brutal, we're cruel. We're cruel on every possible level, emotionally, psychologically and physically, whenever possible. We're unwise. We only do the right thing after we've exhausted every other opportunity. And it's easy to forget that boxing is the most essential visible expression of that human energy. Mm. I will punch your fucking head off. And the fact that we have sanctioned, and Marquess of Queensbury has even gotten involved right. and gone, here's how, because we are actually civilized apes, here's how we're gonna do this. And the fact that we observe that, it, the mixture of brutality and noblesse, for me, just is the most uh, in the same way that a symphony for me is the highest expression of human art, that 55 people can come together with a composer and perform something so emotionally stirring. The same is true of boxing. It's, you know, running faster and jumping higher and all these things are extremely important. Boxing is the one that really expresses who we are. It's both, a both its brutality and the fact that we've that we've made rules and that we observe it very respectfully. Right, right. That is absolutely the, killing people and then counting our dead is the story of our species. True. There's a there's an analogy. I think it's called the four corner theory, which is you've got one kid playing soccer, you've got one kid playing baseball, you've got another playing basketball, and on the fourth corner there's a, a fight that breaks out. Where does the crowd go? We all know immediately where it is. Of course, headed. of course, yeah, and that's yeah, and that's also yeah, it's compelling to watch and the stakes. Yeah, but I'm always really humbled. I'm always I I, uh, I mean you're aware of the danger and uh, of the of the athleticism being displayed. I'm always really uh, I can get damp eyed over the people in the corner and over the ringmaster and the you know the crew around there the, that that incredible little circle who monitor the rules and make sure that you're okay to continue fighting. The guy with the towel, the guy with the, the spray, all of that stuff for me is, you know, it's almost a male, female, uh, in, right. in, in the old money, let's say, you know, back when when binary ideas were, were more prevalent, but it is almost, the, you know, it's like the caring and not caring in equal measure. And I just find it, unquestionably human and I think to analyze it to overanalyze it is a huge mistake mm. as well it's 
Which is part of the pleasure also. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to analyze it We all. should be so lucky. I and mean, we, we as a culture, as Anglo culture, began this millennium sanctioning torture. We're the same ones that talk about everyone else's human rights record. And... Burning witches. We should be so... Exactly, yeah. The smell of burning witch it infected this millennium immediately. Mm. It's completely 17th century. We should be so lucky if every endeavor had the amount of attention paid to the rules as boxing does, mm. despite the people who get involved and etc. It fascinates me. Well, and another thing about what you're talking, the family dynamic in the corner is a wildly disproportionate number of the deaths in boxing are a result of a trainer who is the father of the fighter involved. The father allows more punishment, it seems, to be endured by the son. Yeah, and that's got to be the old story of the father himself didn't do it. The son's the proxy, whether it's lawyer, writer, uh, you know, the son's the, the next horse in the race. Martin Amos to Kingsley Amos. It's type of thing, yeah. yeah, it's a difficult position, but I get that. It is a shame, and I mean, of course, so you're disappointed as hell when there's a good fight and he cops a nasty hook and at the sixth count or something, you're like, they're gonna stop it. And they probably should stop it and, you know, we should too, but it's always disappointing um, when someone goes down and the thing ends when, when it was going well, and you know. You just hope both sides can defend themselves and I think that's where the business of promotion is the only really dirty thing I find um, in terms of matching people, in terms of who ends up there and who they fight and how, they, how the thing proceeds. Let me ask you one question. I'll let you start your meal and we can pause this and return. Um, one thing that really interested me about the Mayweather-Pacquiao fight was you had, as far as I can tell, in the 21st century, it was like to the 21st century what the Titanic was to the 20th, like the most important seating arrangement that was there. Yeah. Because you had Trump surrounded with essentially an award ceremony of the Grammy Awards, the Oscars, a huge assembly of oligarchs and billionaires from Wall Street yep. and international. Some seats going for $375,000 to watch this thing. Yeah. One fighter making $200 million, the other making $100, $120 million. But I always wondered how they jockeyed and how the people they were jockeying for to get a, a, a position of status in the seating arrangement it's its own kind of boxing, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And how do we quantify your value of status? Yeah. The billionaire, the musician, the entertainer, the comedian. Yeah. It's like, like, what is our desire for it? And they're, they're all, I've spoken to some people who organized that. They were saying, how do we not offend these people? If oligarch A from Russia is jockeying with Trump or Jay-Z is trying to not be behind where Puff Daddy or whatever. And I just thought, wow, what a fascinating... They're all there to be seen. Yeah. Where money is no object. Yeah. I mean, it's clearly point one percenters. Yeah. But it was an interesting distillation of how we commodify celebrity or status in the culture somehow through the accident of boxing. Was That's true. was there? But it would also happen at certain other things. You write the boxing trumped anything it had all of them that yeah. was the thing yeah what uh, else has know, all of them? yeah but it, i'm sure it's uh, you know an oscar night nightmare the seating arrangements like, that just translates from the rest of their their life the right a list b list thing it's mercenary <laughs> it is fucking mercenary 
and they'll, just... they'll be used to it, you know what I mean? I knew someone got a, got a film into Sundance uh, based on the early buzz before it was released. Picked up in a limo, driven to Sundance, beautiful apartment, everything like that. That night, the film actually released in wherever it was from, bombed. Chauffeur turned up, said, out of the apartment. Wow. Fuck off. Back out. And presumably the next one came in and you go, you know, credit to anyone who, who, who rides that horse uh, successfully and plays that game. It's ridiculous. And it's more brutal than boxing. You can be killed much more thoroughly. Huh. I thought about this because, as you know, I was following, following Rigondeaux, this two-time Olympic champion, on his way to becoming a world champion. It worked out. Yeah. You know, he's... He was on, a giant, wasn't he? In his way. And, yeah. you know, in this human smuggling boat, he's just a commodity. You know, he's just human cargo. Yeah. And there's a gun to his head, and he's got to sm smuggle himself across Mexico to get to Miami and everything. And he, and he, you know, he made millions of dollars, not tens of millions of dollars, but, I mean, for him, the gamble, leaving behind a wife and kids and that whole calculus... I don't know if he would have done it again. He seemed, there was ambivalence and you could see pain and grief and shame on his face after quote unquote making it, mm -hmm. winning a world title. I asked him, he looked so alone. And he said, well, who was with me? He was surrounded by people, yeah. but they weren't family. They weren't people to share it with. It was collecting diamonds on a deserted island. But there was a Cuban with very similar pedigree who just came out recently. Huge backstory. They got all this magazine coverage, two-time Olympic champion. Rubisi, Rubisi Ramirez was his name. So 25 years old, much younger than Rigondeaux was. Rigondeaux was you know, in, his, in his later 20s, and these little guys develop faster, so yeah. they, they spoil faster. But Rubisi, had, he's on national television in the U.S., he's getting massive profiles in Sports Illustrated and ESPN and everything, and he goes out there and fights a game Mexican who's just a journeyman, and the journeyman just kicks his fucking ass. Really? <laughs> and I thought, boy, what you left behind... That's the thing you have to, you know, you have to win. I faced that, we spoke about that with this damn Booker Prize, like fucking, after my backstory was broken three days before or four days before, it's like, okay, and it's out of your hands, but you know, this isn't gonna work unless you win, now win the thing, you know? But it's, it's crazy. But even how the media portrays it, cause like you had that thing where you said, as much as they think, and they're kind of projecting that you have leaked the story to create this narrative behind it, but you're like, no, no, no. My narrative is what makes you relevant. That who's won the last 10 years of Booker Prizes? I don't know. Who's won the, la the next bunch? It's because your narrative backstory is so much better than all the others that it helped raise the profile of the Booker Prize in its way, which is interesting that you're like, it wasn't me. It's a similar story to that though. Yeah, half, half a gamble or, you know. Mm three out of four or whatever the certain moments it just has to blast through the sky and this poor guy you're talking about well uh, he's the example of losing to it. wit yeah it's like that's you know that's a shame because i was reading as i was reading those stories the day after he lost i was thinking it's hard for me to escape the lowest level response which is you spent months and months and months in Mexico with cartel people chasing you and you're petrified and you've left your family behind and you fought like this? Yeah. This is the expression yeah, yeah. of having your first opportunity to have this wonderful career and he just looks so indifferent 
and just cruise control. Yeah. Just autopilot. Yeah. Of all people who would be on autopilot, you'd think you'd be the last, and yet he was. Yeah, it's a shame. But you don't know what, you know, the particulars of a life that lead up to that, you just don't know. You don't know. Even the night before, what could have happened, you know? Right. It's like, people used to go to the, um, El Cordobés, the bullfighter El Cordobés, famously, yeah, as the cuadrilla is entering the ring, the, desperately trying to find where he is because he's in a room with a woman or women somewhere spending all his energies um, but still managed to come out and be extraordinary mm. but you just don't know you know if one of those had gone sour uh, why do you think Tyson for somebody that basically lost their ability to maintain their excellence by about 21 was already on the downhill yet so profitable, so much bigger than boxing, so much a, a Mount Rushmore of his era. You know, not just in sport, but just as an icon. And he fulfilled that thing that Ali had about probably being the most famous face on earth. Yes. For a little while. Yeah. What is it about the psychology of Tyson that spoke so strongly to the American public, to you? I don't know, but do you know what? It, in my mind, the period coincided with the arrival of the Incredible Hulk, or followed on the heels of that, and it was the closest. Mm. I mean, um, Ali, of course, a very elegant and very eloquent person and fighter. Um, Tyson, for me as a youngster, was more in the role of your superhero. I mean, that was, that was like the Hulk, and it was opening almost a, you know beyond super heavyweight right. kind of thing of fearsomeness the psychology of facing him in the ring must have been something extraordinary well and, and that's an element that I'm intrigued by is that Ali seems like your perennial hero mm. Tyson seems like your villain like why does America need a villain to, you know the, yeah. it seemed like an era of anti-heroes of Wall Street as Gordon Gecko and Scarface it's a shame it's a shame and I don't know I, you know, I wasn't on the ground there to, mm. to pick up the whole of it and so I have a beautiful, uh, my story ends uh, with you know, missing, seeing what would have happened yeah. and how that would have played out because there was much, there was a lot left in him. I would argue that he was on a, on a permanent slide from that. I would argue that he's there, but also I'm gonna blame, and this is where we, we spoke already about the, the back room of boxing. I'm going to argue. I'm going to argue, or at least ask, is he managed properly? And what what was the psychology of managing him? And what what was he ready for? Who was who was dealing with him? Because I th he very possibly could have been handled in a much different way by, let's say, his people or whoever was promoting him. I think there's some dovetail with you in that in that his manager was his father figure who died really before the career got started. You know, I think by 1985 he would have been. Uh, 18, 19 years old, and the father figure, the mentor, the savior figure of Customato is dead. And Tyson is sort of untethered at that point, and that whole nucleus that Cus had created for him yeah. had gone. And Tyson's on his own. It would have been significant to him. Well, and, and you have to imagine. Well, and I mean, that's not far off when you lost your own father. Mm -hmm. I mean, I. I remember that being one of the big fears of my life. I mean, that's the Freudian thing, is the living father is the great, greatest source of anxiety for a male. 
but is that I, a fact that I hadn't heard? That's a, yeah, it's something that Zizek has brought up a number okay. of times. That you see it in film all all the time. Yeah. But to There's strength in it. Yeah, but to lose that and to be on your own, you know, in a very primal way, and especially in Tyson's case, to be doing it in public, mm. in real time. I mean. How much do you think the lo- that loss in your own life informed your own impetus to sort of launch the way you needed to? I mean, did you? I mean, I think it's hard for me to fathom not having the father's eyes watching me as I sort of move through life, and sure. to lose it is a it's still kind of I'm bracing for it a little bit. Sure, moves him to tears the moment you bring up Cuss's name. Yeah, yeah. Still, it must have a. a, a, a in terms of Tyson, the psychology of that, and it actually highlights the importance of psychology. I feel him less, uh, at that time certainly, much less uh, autonomous, less, less self-supporting psychologically than Ali, for instance. Mm. So I can imagine it having been a significant paradigm shift. Sure. Uh, but it does highlight the, the importance of psychology in boxing. You can train all you like, but you need to really, you know, it's an incredible thing when it comes to, you know, the 10th round of a particular fight. And you need to then, when you're tired and, and, and beaten up, you need to pull out your best, like a fresh person. It must be phenomenal. One thing I thought could be interesting to touch on with Tyson that always intrigued me is being such a symbol for the ushering in of hip-hop culture mm. because it seemed like rappers adored Tyson um, uh, Mama Said Knock You Out was one of the great anthems of the era yeah. which Tyson very much adopted yeah. uh, Tupac Shakur wanted to be friends with Tyson in that era um, but I felt like Tyson was so interesting because you know, while we've been here in Oaxaca and we're seeing people with these tattoos and, and trying to you know read them before we can see people. Yep. Tyson was somebody very much that one of his trainers said, it's not that he lacked character, it's that he had no character. He was always searching for who he was. Which is the job of every young person yeah. as well. So that, you know, we have to be careful not to put that on because he was a boxer. I mean, that's all that job. Also to remember that that's incredibly young to have that weight of crown on your shoulders. Right, is phenomenal, and I can see. I actually, I, I warm very much to Tyson for, for actually displaying um, much more common humanity and much more of the, uh, you know, of, of the vulnerability mm. that we all have to face in a, in a certain way. Looking back, especially, you go, you know, that that's a very human story, and. Um, he did what he could under the circumstances. Do you find it interesting that Tyson goes to prison about the same age as Ali falls out of boxing with the Vietnam War, mm. but Tyson being convicted for rape and emerging emerges a much more lucrative asset in American culture as a commodity than when he went in? Timing. Yeah, it was that post-Wall Street with Gordon Gekko right. and stuff. Yeah. No, the, the whole psychology shifted. Um, that's an interesting period and do you know what we're living the tale of it right. you and I privately have been talking about every generation being the lash of the whip 
of a family which can travel centuries right and we see it physically with the you know uh, a weakness for cancer a weakness for madness and all the things that travel down to us but also the psychological whip and if you've had any kind of hardship guarantee if you got it bad from your parents they got it bad from someone and their parents probably got it bad from someone and that all travels down and we end up carrying that that ball yeah um, I've got a real theory that a lot of people have kids completely unknowingly subconsciously in order to pass that baton on and give the riddle to someone else mm. and be peaceful and they can code it into their kids and it's the kids issue to, to have to deal with it has been passed down and passed down and um, it seems to have happened culturally and that's we can trace where we're sitting today um, in an extremely different place but you can draw a straight line to that time which was a loosening it was untying of the shoes of our culture in my mind right. and we've been stumbling along waiting to trip and now we're kind of our fear and our shame has diminished incredibly mm. We're much more brutal in many respects in our personal relationships. We're quite willing. I mean, I can't imagine even in the 80s facing the likes of Tinder and stuff like being able to commoditize a human being to that degree sure. and swipe left and right. Um, and so you're right, the line started then and and he was just the most brutal thing in book. I would say that would be true whenever he had arisen. Right. Because he looked formidable and was formidable. But um, and it's a the brutal particular time. timing and to come with the badge of of of, uh, of prison on right. his back made him a particular destroyer. I imagine he would be psychologically doubly frightening for an opponent after that. And you imagine he comes out with a having resolved some things but be with perhaps a sense of, of of not much to lose and that's dangerous with someone of that scale well and i think also operating where you know so many eyes are on you you know you're in the kind of collective american imagination as yeah. this nightmarish figure and fetish very yeah. much fetish that america doesn't want to be responsible for he's the train wreck it's not us we're watching. We're no, paying. he's our boy. That's our mascot. Our mascot. Yeah, that's, that's it. where we put our shadows onto him. But right. at the same time as we're putting our shadows onto him, we want him to be as brutal as possible. Right. We want him to triumph through through you know negative energies, if you like. Right. And um, yeah, it's as you say, it's a reflection. It's a reflection of the time, and that timing was there. I'm just, I have a lingering sorrow that we didn't see the career span an unbroken right. place because I think there was plenty more to see and things could have gone very differently because we can't choose what happens to us no. is the problem no I mean he was a bit of a comet that came and went yes no but he's still there and the other thing I'm really glad of is that he survived and metamorphosed into all kinds of other stuff so he remains uh, you know he's, he continues growing yeah. so we, we can't speak of him as a as a lost icon at all he's out there and I'm sure we'll still see plenty more I hope we will I remember he said to me one, he asked who some of my other heroes were growing up the first time I talked to him and I mentioned the common link was and this was a revelation to me I hadn't put it together was that suicide was a common link mm. and he said yes if it was a prerequisite I said well I didn't really assume you making it past 30 either and he said neither did I 
But one of the things that struck me in the phase he's in, a bit of a parallel with, with you and your success and people seeking the backstory as much as the story that you wrote, sure. is Tyson, even in prison, I remember the first interview I caught with him that deeply resonated with me is he's reading all these books, classics that very much influenced you, Tolstoy, mm. Dostoevsky, Fitzgerald, Voltaire. Um, he said, I, I really don't ever want to look back on my life and my career after it's over. I want to look ahead. Mm. And really his whole career now, much, much like America, is endlessly commodifying nostalgia. He has a podcast now. He did a one, one-man show on Broadway. It was an HBO special. Mm. And all it is is an audience sort of voyeuristically delighting in him going through and recycling this backstory sure. of how wild and crazy and, and how dark it all went. And I guess it's redeemed that you know, he's coming out of his bankruptcy. He's lost $400 million that he earned as a prize fighter. But is there a sense of not prostituting your backstory or people trying to pimp your, your backstory that is particularly galling to be confronted with by the public or the media? Sure, absolutely, it is galling. But in that case, you know, I presume that's called making a living. Right. And it, the question is, in the current time, which one is going to be the one who doesn't do it? Because everyone is doing it, really. Uh, so, you know, increasingly, I'm finding with life, you really have to trim with your mind and take into account context much more because we used to be more restrained and many of the things which are now desirable qualities were undesirable qualities at the time that he was fighting. Mm. There's been a real repolarization. So making a living with what you have in order to presumably do other things, um, uh, you know, it would have been prostitution at a certain time and it no longer is due to being exceptionalist. Everyone's doing it. It's a shame. I've never, I'm in a, a much quieter position as a writer because although it must be true to some extent that, um, that the backstory informs people's interest in the work, that can never be, never be the basis for a show. By the way, that's not gunfire, that's fireworks. Yeah, we're being strafed by branches falling. Yeah, exactly, yeah, a tree is falling on us, but we can deal with that. <laughs> Fear and loathing in Oaxaca. Yeah, but I'm not in a, of course, you know, I'm, I'm not sought after in, in order to, to, to give, the question always comes up, for instance, but I'm not in a position to give, you know, talks about that. It's, it's still principally about the book, and so I'm not in a position to, to prostitute anything, and just as well. Yeah. I'm kind of, I'm excused from the question personally, but in his case, you know, making a living, uh, that's what he has. And it is an interesting story. If people are fascinated, then he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to take into account whether it's prurient and uh, wrongly motivated interest. If, uh, if it pays the bill, and presumably with that, he's doing other things with his life, and, you know, trying to survive. I guess I just find as a personage, part of, you know, what, what you and I are doing with writing, with what he's doing with fighting, all of this in America, especially in America, is trying to create a gateway drug with who you are that the public at large can become addicted to. Well, now, but now they're building it from scratch. Yes. 
brands yeah. and all that shit. Yeah, and that's a different job altogether. Yeah, self-commoditizing. Yeah, the commodity existed with him, and and he was innocent of it in the very first instance. And we have to remember was uh, an awesome fighter and a great great hope on the horizon. And that's so it's not self-created. He he, he is that person, and I think it it excuses him. Yeah, if only marginally from trading on any of that, including including the backstory. And people forget that a very great many people are famous today, having done fuck all, except make themselves famous. Right. And occasionally, and you see them in being mentioned in the same phrase. And it's for us to stop and go, okay, well that was a footballer. This one here was an actor. This one here was so that is coming from something because mm. they're now we're measuring simply by celebrity, right? And forgetting that uh, in fact some of them, by nature and by by effort, have, have achieved something. And it's for us to make the distinction. I don't think we'll do that for very long into the no. future, but we can still do that. Well, and I I just find it interesting because Dostoevsky played such a big role for you. I mean, notes from the underground, and I find it really intriguing that you touched upon a society moving to a place where the unreliable narrator may be the anti-hero, but a question of who wears the white hat or the black hat. Yeah. With Tyson, one of the things that seemed to change a little bit is you have brought up the kind of commodification of leisure as being a relatively new thing. You got it. So why don't we go there? Yeah. That. Leisure and snack foods. Leisure and snack foods. What a great... That's almost a category of trivial pursuit, isn't it? But, I mean, you go to the extreme of... Snack foods and leisure. Yeah, speaking of the fucking fireworks that sound like fucking cannons. Yeah. But, I mean, in terms of... You put Vernon on a reality TV show on death row to make a point. There was a lobby for that at one time. Um, And somebody actually wrote to me not long ago and said, you said something, you know, years and years ago, that it was no joke that there was a credible lobby, I had said, for, to televise executions on two, on two grounds. A, it's inherent in the system that justice must be seen to be done. Executions are already witnessed, and so we're simply expanding the audience. And B, the cost of executing someone far, far exceeds the cost of imprisoning them and feeding them for life. Right. It's incredibly expensive, the execution. Although they've, they've been trying to trim it by taking out, in, in some places, taking out legal recourse. Uh, but it's expensive and it could be a way to fund it. Uh, the Oklahoma bomber, of course, had, had asked or begged for his to be televised. Uh, to a certain number, and it had fueled and fed into this debate, uh, or this lobby that I'd seen, where they're going, kind of, yeah, why not? They are witnessed, and in fact, they must be witnessed by law, and it extends the right of people, we televised the court scenes, extends the right of people to see justice actually being done, and so, the thing about Vernon was so many things, there were things I couldn't include in the book, which were more incredible than fiction. And I kept a list of them, and they are verifiable, but, you know, the death row lawyers throwing parties upon getting convictions. The fact that one parent, one father complained 
when his son, under a system where he's supposedly presumed innocent, his son was met by a prosecutor, or prosecutors used to wear noose neckties or skeleton neckties on capital trials, used to give each other like, electric chair cakes and plaques and, and stuff like that. Um, one of the prosecutor's officers had a noose hanging over the door as a, a gag and so, and it was one parent that actually was upheld in, in one of the states, which I don't need to name, um, and it was upheld because it's a, it's a little bit, he's presumed innocent yeah. and there's already like, you know, toys being made of his execution and you have to stop. And they did stop them wearing the neckties into court, but they still threw parties, beer and barbecue parties, and gave each other gifts of little electric chairs and stuff when they got it, secured a conviction. And now on the one hand, that is uh, you know, lawyers winning a case and, and triumphing, and on the other, it was taken in a bad taste. But I couldn't use it in a book because it seemed implausible that that would happen. And so the stuff that's in the but some of that is actually not only routine, uh, fast track has been uh, in a couple of states. You can't you can't appeal very high up because that ties that's expensive as hell. Ties the system up forever, and also it keeps guys. And this is on the plus side. It keeps guys languishing on death row for a long time, uh, which isn't really fulfilling their sentence. And so now they, you know they can turn them over much quicker. It's cheaper. The guy faces his his fate much easier. Um, but you, it, it also did seem like you were trying to drive at something. I mean, lynchings were pastoral photo ops, you know, mm. for, for, you know, 19th century selfies. You know, look, look, let's have a pleasant evening with Nothing's the family. Nothing's changed is my position. Right. Nothing absolutely has changed. Well, and that's what I'm trying to get at. Mm. Which, you, you make the comparison with witch hunts, the, the contemporary equivalent is terrorism. Yeah, hunts. no, well, Tyson, Tyson would have been welcome in the Colosseum facing a lion. For, for absolutely no different reason than he was welcome facing an opponent or facing a, a judge. Uh, you know, that, that's our mascot. That's our... It's a pretty good audio effects for this fucking interview. It is like the BBC the sound effects, isn't it? But a folly bit of footsteps as well. Yeah. Chairs. But wasn't one of your points with the idea of, like, what is the line if a child on death row for something he clearly hasn't done is fodder for reality TV well before reality TV has exploded? You've written this in, you know, you're writing this in 1999. So you're looking ahead in that way that we've talked about where Robert Hughes was saying about Goya. He's not just looking at Napoleon as it's happening in Madrid in real time. He's looking ahead at where this is going in human nature. His face is against the glass into the 20th century, not just the 19th. Mm. And there's a feeling of that with your work too, where I just think like, people are dying in the ring in boxing, but yeah. it's entertainment, people are cheering. I asked Ben Anderson like, how is it that you go covering the war and that's something that people, we think, oh my God, they must suffer PTSD to see such things. But they see fucking people die in the ring. The first time America saw a man killed on camera in video was a boxing ring mm. Emil Griffith and Benny Perrette mm. um, and then a man murdered with, with J, not JFK but with uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was the first man they saw on TV get murdered 
but that's right Jack Ruby wasn't it right mm. so I just wonder like are you making a point that we get desensitized like right now we're in a culture where murder serial killers the more grisly and grotesque procedurals about serial killers it's the shallowest form of entertainment yeah. six miles away in the trunk of a Buick detective Rodriguez and they love finds it. and they love it badly dismembered trunk of a man in his late 40s right right but what do you we're, see? We're with fascinated, that? but it's like Alarma. Just now in Mexico City, for old time's sake, I took you to the newsstand. Right. Uh, in case there still existed a, a, a paper, a weekly mag, which was a roundup, a photographic roundup of, of the country's grisliest deaths, murders, crimes. Women, children, beheadings, mutilation. Yeah, yeah the wilder the better, and with extremely lurid headlines. Um, it's part of a therapeutic, it's part of a cultural function in Mexico, which is a much broader thing and, and which we could talk for hours on. So I don't, I don't say it's purely the macabre. But, and in fairness, the magazine has disappeared according to the, the newsstand seller. Very recently. Yeah, it may have moved online, we need to check. But yeah. um, anyway, as a phenomenon, of course, we're, you know, we've always been interested in the dark. And we have to remember, it just depends how you dress it. 19th century um, and even my own my in my own parents memory um, your loved ones were laid out on a dining room table in the front room and they could be there for days for people to come and visit but that's in a spirit of respect death death masks were made dolls were often made um, wall hangings uh, you know with your dead baby's hair and ribbons and things which which are incredibly macabre, but of course that's memento mori. Yeah, it's just one of the ways I think that we handle the ridiculous fact that no art or science has yet come to explain how can you be so fucking alive and then be so fucking dead right. in the same universe. Like, what's that about? That's not plausible. Right. Did you see a school shooting way back when it really inspired this voice yeah before you were in your own mind even a writer as some kind of societal burglar alarm or you know well for sure i mean what are the odds? never in history when when did an affluent and well-fed child go and randomly kill a bunch of other children um and it's not to no one said it's no one said these these folk are mentally ill actually and now the mass shooting is almost every day well and, but you could see that coming you could see that coming and that's what started me writing you know this was triggered by there's one before Columbine um, which I saw on TV and that triggered Vernon's voice because I, I I didn't even know which one it was or, or what the story was but I just saw the pictures you know the 50 police cars and this, this door sure being put into one of them and the level of celebrity the level of infamy that he'd achieved you immediately knew that would that would be repeated and repeated and repeated interesting you go to celebrity with it that's an interesting it is celebrity it is celebrity you can get on the front page i can get i could get on the front page with the instruments at this table and the people nearby to me i could be on international front pages tomorrow the question is, will I cross that line? Do I have the will? 
why would I do it? I'm not obviously going to do that, but the instruments are here, and you know, if someone's sunk to a certain place or if they're of a certain mentality, it's extremely easy. Well, in a culture also that begins to, you know, we talked about if, if Gordon Gecko, if uh, Tony Montana, if Michael Corleone are created as cautionary tales. Yeah. Only well, we that, love them, but then we put you know, great actors in them. And romanticize them. We romanticize them, yeah. But then America goes, these are not villains. These are, these inspire. Gecko is a recruitment campaign for Wall Street. Yeah. Tony Montana is a recruitment campaign for for the mafia, yeah. you know, for young people to go down this road. Um, you know, I so I I just wonder. It's intriguing to me. It's like wrestling, where like the baby faces and the heels suddenly we, like it's just a controlled experiment to see what people enjoy. Yeah. And that all that always changes, where people go into what they enjoy and. And. No, and I, I guess like a, a last, a last point I wanted to look at. I was thinking because one of the things I find so interesting about the ambiguity with suicide, collectively, is people knee, knee-jerk reaction of a lot of people. Big segment of society is to say how cowardly it is. Suicide is. They will. Well, if a big public suicide happens, they'll oh, okay, say, yeah, you know, yeah. how selfish and cowardly. It's one position. It's one position, yeah. but it's it's a broad one. Yeah. But what I think it betrays a little bit is that so many people want to endlessly whine about their lives or be medicated to cope with their lives. And I think there's a bit of envy in those that have the courage, I think the perceived courage, to actually have the conviction to say enough is enough. Whereas most people want to live the quiet desperation or the, or the and I'm not, I'm not trying to dismiss what they're complaining about or, or dealing with, mm. but it interests me that it's frightening to think of the act of going through with something like that as, uh, as an act of courage that most of us can't, you know, Tolstoy said, you can't really complain about anything because the safety valve is within all of our, our, our utility. Mm. You know, we can all pull the switch whenever we want, but we don't. Because we don't know, you know, Hamlet. We don't know what comes next. You know, that's yeah. the that's the fear that al- allows the inaction. Um, so I find that fascinating in the culture that triple the murder rate that everybody says is so terrible is this other act, which is skyrocketing with yeah. unprecedented numbers yeah. across the board, yeah. specifically with the newest generation. Yeah, that's a huge shame. Young suicide is a huge shame. Even we shouldn't talk talking about it and that is also shown talking about it even in a good sense even your advertisements against you know that cause them and I can I can perfectly well you know again we shouldn't I shouldn't give my you know my full thoughts on this because it's heaven forbid you know but um, I'm imagining that realization not only that things are bad and that your feelings are there but that the conundrum is such that they cannot change and that's that's a position you know the, that's when people go no there can always be this and that no there will come times when the thing is you know, the riddle is too big or the paradox is, is too existent and well, let me conclude with a question. 
<clears throat> was this still boxing? Or this is just a chat now? It doesn't matter, but carry on. We'll see how it lands. I never know until I listen to it later. Cool. Jorge. Jorge, edit! Big, yeah, big, big job, man. Sorry about that. That's called rambling, but also I've had one nice beer and a coffee and I'm a good guy really very much enjoyed conversing with you these Likewise, days I have likely. to say I'm not a conversationalist nor am I I like I'm someone like you that like sitting around a table with a limited you know four people is great six is fine but I'm not a not a social butterfly and so um, it's been a real tonic and a great pleasure and unexpected I didn't know what to expect but unexpectedly so talking with you so thank me, you me too, you know, me too. I feel much better having been here than than, um, you know, than I did before I arrived. So. No, I do too. So I, I, thank, thank you for that. As a, as a parting statement, would you close your eyes? I have a surprise for you. <laughs> we can leave it there. Tourist Information is presented by The Ring, is produced by Dolgen Digital Media, Jorge Alacon Suebi, and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thank you.